So there was a very significant death that happened a little over a week ago that I'm sure you read about, you saw it in the news. It was the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I realize in a church as big as Calvary with as many diverse political views as Calvary, just saying her name might bring up some different feelings for folks. You know, some people hear her name and they have incredibly favorable views of her. And there's others maybe that hear her name and have unfavorable views. But no matter what you think about her personally or what she stood for, I thought it was interesting to notice in the news coverage that there was a story that kept getting lifted up. And for me, it really stood out in this whole coverage. And it was the story of her friendship with the late Justice Scalia. Because as you probably know, they were the polar opposites politically. They had completely different judicial philosophy, yet they were the best of friends. They bonded over a love of the opera, and they were said to have dinner many times together with their spouses in each other's apartments. Sometimes uh, they would uh, prepare the meals together, and then they would go to the opera, and they would enjoy incredible music together. It was just this unlikely pair of people. And I think what they did is they, they highlighted for us, they spotlighted for us the idea of how we can disagree politically and yet love unconditionally. And so many times through the years, each of them were interviewed and asked about their friendship. And one of them, the favorite quotes that I saw was from Justice Scalia. And he said, you know, I'm willing to attack ideas, but I will never attack a person. You know, I think oftentimes we start with good intentions. Maybe we want to attack an idea that we don't agree with or that we're concerned about. But so easily we slide into attacking people. Now, this is concerning in our culture and in our political systems, but it's especially concerning because it oftentimes happens in the church where we end up attacking other people that we disagree with. And that's not at all how God calls us to live and to conduct ourselves. We're not meant to tear each other down in order to make a quick point. So we're in the final week of this series we're calling Talking Points. And it's all about how we should live out our faith amidst all the division and animosity that we see throughout our country and even throughout our world. As you probably know, there's an election in just a few weeks away And how we decide to behave as a church greatly impacts how we are perceived by the world. How we decide to interact with social media. How we decide to talk to our neighbors. How we decide to talk about others that we might disagree with has a huge impact in our future witness as we try to live out our mission. You know, really the question is, are we going to mirror culture? Are we going to become as ugly in our behavior, in our rhetoric, as we're seeing on all sides of the political spectrum today? Or instead, are we going to commit to following Jesus first and show the world what a difference he can make? So if you've been with us through this series, we've been talking about some talking points because the Republicans, of course, have talking points and so do the Democrats and so do all these other political camps. But what if we as a church committed 
to some talking points. So week one, our talking point was that we will disagree politically and love unconditionally. And it's something so basic. It's something we might think, well, that's no big deal. But it is so countercultural today. We are so tribal as people in America. We often gravitate to the people who think exactly the way we do and tell us that we're always right. Now, the thing is, we're not always going to see things the same way, even in the church. And that's okay. Jesus' disciples and the early church modeled this for us. There were people on all sides of the political spectrum who came together in unity. And they were united in faith and mission. And what they did is together they chose to love other people radically. Well, then last week, week number two, our next talking point was that we will listen, learn, and love. Because isn't that what we want others to do for us? You know, that's how we want to be treated. And so we owe that to other people. And part of this is we need to stop labeling people. We need to stop essentializing people. Because what we do when we put a label on someone or we say essentially they're just this label is we sum them up put them in a box so that we can dismiss them. And that's not how God calls us to act and to behave. Instead, he calls us to assume the best about other people. You know, when we find out about someone, especially someone we don't know very well, we love to construct a narrative. All right, that person stands for this or they have that political sign outside. Now I'm going to create the story of why that happened. And typically, we assume the worst. What if instead we would do as Jesus calls us to do? We would assume the best. We'd put a positive construction. Now, that person doesn't hate America. That person just looks at things a little bit differently than I do. And remember what we talked about last week. Where someone stands has a lot to do with where they sit. You know, our political views aren't formed in a vacuum. A lot of things come together throughout our life to get us to where we're at today. As Christ followers, we need to be so careful about how we choose to combine our faith and politics. And when we seemingly communicate to the world that there's only one right way to vote, or there's only one right candidate, or there's only one right party, it can do great, great harm to our witness, which is the most important thing. What it can do is it can put an unnecessary barrier in front of people who need to hear the gospel. You know, one of our commitments in our five-year vision as a church is that we want to have no hurdles to hope. We want to remove every hurdle we can from people coming to hear the good news about Jesus. And the reality is today, oftentimes in the church, we put unnecessary barriers in front of people, things that repel people from hearing the gospel. You know, this is not consistent with how the disciples interacted together. They chose to stay united even though they had all sorts of different political ideas. It's, of course, not consistent with the early church, which brought together every type of political belief and brought them together united under the cross. See, church, we do a great disservice And we even do great damage when we turn Jesus into a partisan figure. 
Jesus did not come to support or to build up or to prop up any existing ideology or any existing platform. No, instead, Jesus came to completely turn things upside down. He came to completely replace what was already in place. He came to completely reverse the order of things. And that's why he is so frustrating to people on all sides. When we make Jesus into just another partisan figure, or when we make him a defender of a platform, we rob the world of his real message, which sets out to change us completely and to change the world completely. So as we finish out this series this week, what I want to talk with you about today is kingdoms. And specifically, I want to ask you, which kingdom are you putting first in your life? You see, we cannot be party people first. And I'm not talking about freshman year of college. We need to be kingdom people first. And that's our last, our third talking point. We will put God's kingdom first. Our allegiance must be to Jesus first and foremost. And our country, our party, our candidate must come as distant second. The reality is neither party or any candidate, none of them are going to check all the boxes of what God expects of us and what he commands from us. I like what Pastor Scott Saul says. He says, in many ways, Jesus is more conservative than the far right. And in other ways, he was more progressive than the far left. On one hand, he upheld the law. On the other hand, he upended cultural norms. Neither party, neither candidate is a perfect representation of Jesus' values. Each of them gets some parts right and some parts wrong. And the thing is, we need to be honest about these imperfections. It doesn't mean you can't support a candidate or a party, but just be honest about them. Recognize that faithful and faith-filled people might think differently than you. Yes, there are faithful people on both sides of the aisle. Now, you might be saying, well, that sounds overly ideal. I mean, there are big things at stake, aren't there? Does this really matter that much? And I would say absolutely this matters because it mattered deeply to the early church. Many, many Christians, thousands, maybe millions, lost their lives over this kind of belief and this kind of ethic. Because you see, they refused to give unconditional loyalty to any emperor, even the good ones. And in doing so, by staying above the fray, by following Jesus first, they helped to push people to push countries and societies towards a better morality and better ethics and better thinking. And one of the most powerful ways that they were able to do this in very hostile societies is they were able to influence others through their unity and their love. Now we know the world has always been top-down. The world has always been about power and dominance. 
Power and wealth are of the utmost importance. And people throughout history have bought their way up the ladder. Slogans like greed is good, it's the survival of the fittest, have just been commonplace. And it's to that kind of world that Jesus' followers stood out like a sore thumb. Because Christianity was really the first movement where people of every different class, background, status, net worth, all came together voluntarily to worship a crucified Savior. Now, why were they willing to do this? Well, it's because the good news of Jesus is good news for all people. Everyone was invited to join in and to participate. And this kingdom was not like anything the world had ever seen. It was completely revolutionary. And it was at odds with every social and political structure of the day. It turned upside down every social convention and every structure. And it set out to show us a new way to live, really a new kingdom to participate in. Now, one of the places that this ethic is found very clearly is in the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians was written by the Apostle Paul. It's a letter to a church. And in chapter 3, verse 28, there's a few lines that were completely earth-shattering, blew people's minds. No one had ever heard anything like it before. Let's look at the first line where he says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. This alone was astounding. He's saying there is no longer any cultural or ethnic dividing line in his church or in his kingdom. I mean, this was the most obvious and deep division that there was. No Gentile had ever stepped foot in a Jewish home and vice versa. And Jesus is saying to them, no matter what your story is, no matter what your background is, you are completely equal before God. No matter what kind of knowledge you had, whether you grew up memorizing the Torah or this is all new to you, you are equal in God's eyes. And actually, you're on the same team. He goes on to say, there's neither slave nor free. In God's eyes, slaves and masters were equal. This flew in the face of conventional thinking where people would say, you know, some people were born to rule others and some people were born to be ruled by others. Just the way it is. Slaves had no rights. They had no value. And Jesus is saying, there should be no division at all. In my kingdom, you're all equally valuable. Everybody has dignity, no matter what. In God's eyes, slaves and masters are on equal footing under the cross. And then he says, nor is there male or female. And this is totally unheard of. There's no distinction in value between men and women at all. The whole power structure of the time reinforced this. Women had no rights. They couldn't own property. And now that separation is called into question. God's kingdom is completely different. And then Paul sums it up. He says, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There are absolutely no distinctions or classes or levels in God's eyes. All people have equal value, equal dignity, and equal worth. And we were created to be one together. 
but why is our world so divided? Why do we have this natural inclination to try to separate? He says, no, you are one, but not one in anything of this world. You are one in Christ Jesus. Church, understand what this means, that almost 1,800 years before we had a Bill of Rights, God has already declared who we are and who we are to be. Now, this is so countercultural. It was so dangerous because it threatened the power structures. This is a better kingdom. This is the way the world was created to be. All of us are invited, no matter who we are. But the empire, whose business it was in preserving the status quo, set out to try to clamp down and crack down on this new kingdom. I mean, you can't let all the slaves go free. You can't give women freedom and power. I mean, what would happen? And so they started killing Christians. They fed them to the lions. They persecuted them. They even crucified them. And yet, through it all, through all the persecution, the church continued to grow. The emperor Julian wrote a letter to a friend, and we actually have the record of it today. So he wrote to this friend, and he said, the more he tried to destroy Christianity, the more it grew. And he couldn't figure it out. He said, not only do they care for their own poor people, they care for our poor people. Well, Jesus predicted that his kingdom would grow. And it did, just like he said. Look at Luke 16, 16. He said, until John the Baptist, the law of Moses and the messages of the prophets were your guides. But now the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and Everyone is eager to get in. It's exactly what happened. It became a global movement and people couldn't get enough. It really didn't start to lose steam until the Emperor Constantine decided to start to force people to become Christians. See, church, whenever Christianity loses its distinctives, whenever it tries to act like the world, it tries to co-opt the systems of this world, it starts to lose when Christianity starts to crave power, when it sells its soul for a temporary gain, when it starts to make compromises, it starts to decline. It's what we've seen in Europe and we're seeing in America today. See, at their best, Christians stuck stuck out because they stepped up. Christians stuck out to the world because they stepped up. For instance, they refused to abandon the sick. In the second century, there was a horrible plague that went around the countries. And what would happen is if one of your family members got sick, you would leave them at your home and you would hightail it out of there. You'd leave them to die. Well, what people started to notice is that Christians would come and care for these family members left behind. People took notice and it's in historical documents. Christians took in children who were abandoned. It was just commonplace. If you didn't want your kid, go leave them beside the road. They especially reached out and took care of kids with handicaps and special needs, and the world took notice. They treated women and slaves and children with dignity when the culture said they were less than. When a woman's husband died, she was given two years to get remarried 
or the state would cut off all support and leave her to die. Well, in Christianity, it said that we honor and support widows, and they would take them into their homes as part of their family, and the world took notice. At that time, women were expected to be completely faithful to their husbands, but men could have as many mistresses and wives as they wanted, and Christianity was the first system to say men should be faithful to the wives that they had, to the wife they had. And the world took notice. And the poor were treated with dignity and respect and honor because Christians showed a spirit of generosity and compassion, and it stood out in that culture. In fact, 45 years after the Apostle Paul was executed, Pliny the Younger was the governor of modern-day Turkey. And he wrote a letter to Emperor Trajan, and he wanted to know what to do with all the Christians in his province. He knew that the common thinking was they were a threat to the empire, but he, and they were supposed to be put in prison, but he couldn't figure it out. So before he sent the letter, he did an investigation. He went and tried to figure out who these people were. So in the letter, he said, this is what I found out. They get up early in the morning. They gather together for a worship service, but what they do is they sing hymns to a crucified God. And then they recite an oath, but it's not an oath against the empire. In this oath, they commit to not committing fraud, theft, adultery, or breaking anyone's trust. And they pledge to help anyone who asks for help. So as far as he looked, he couldn't find anything wrong with them. And he was so puzzled. I mean, how is this bad? How is this a threat? But you see, in a culture that worshipped power and dominance and wealth and selfishness, they stood out. And so this new kingdom that Jesus came to usher in became more than a curiosity. It became contagious and compelling. And it spread like wildfire. It didn't spread through military force, even though sometimes people misguided tried. It spread through sacrificial love. Instead of conquer your opponent, it said love your enemy. Instead of survival of the fittest, it said love one another. Christianity, when it's at its best, caught people's attention because it spoke to their soul. I mean, this is the way the world is meant to be. This is how things are supposed to be to happen. And the thing about this kingdom movement is that against all odds, the church remained united together. Started with people who were divided in every way possible, in every area you could be divided, but they found unity at the foot of the cross. So church, we don't have any excuse to not follow their example. They stayed united. They were passionate about their mission. And they changed the world in ways that we completely take for granted today. But what if we committed to follow their lead? I wonder what would happen if we committed as a church to love so radically that it would be contagious to the rest of the world. Remember, Jesus said, they will know you are my followers by your love. Not by your social media account. Not by your nice takedown of your political opponent. People will know who you are. They'll know you are my followers 
by how well you love others. But church, let's stop for a moment and think, how are we known by the people around us? If you were to ask an unchurched friend or neighbor what their perception of Christians is today, what kind of answer do you think you'd get? About 10 years ago, the Barna Group did a big study. They do Christian polling. They polled thousands of 16 to 29-year-olds, and they asked them the simple question, when you hear the word Christian, what do you think of? And here are a few of the top responses. By far, these are the most common responses they got back. When this group heard the word Christian, they said hypocritical, uncaring, anti-homosexual, too political, too judgmental. So now a decade later, I wonder if the responses would be any different. You see, it was the love and the unity of the people following Jesus in the early church that made it so contagious. What can we learn from their example? What are some of the things, the behaviors, the priorities that we need to reclaim and recommit to? I think it all starts with asking the question I posed just a few minutes ago. Which kingdom are you putting first? There was a tax collector who decided to follow Jesus. He decided to do ministry with a group of guys that didn't see eye to eye. Even some of them were the complete opposites of him politically. And yet he sat down and he wrote this verse. He said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. It's written by Matthew, Jesus' disciple. Matthew set aside his political commitments, and it really kept his bank account nicely stocked. It was his association with the empire that he made his living. But he joined together with these 12 other men who were all over the spectrum, who decided to be united in mission and purpose. And what they did day after day is they put God's kingdom first. And they shared the story of Jesus and they lived it out day after day. And every single one of them was put to death because they were seen as a threat to the empire and to the power structures. But the message spread because of their commitment to love and unity. And the world was changed forever. What if we would reclaim and recommit to those priorities? Let's pray. God, we are thankful that you are a graceful, loving, and forgiving God because, God, we acknowledge that we get this wrong so often. God, we put our allegiance and our trust in structures of this world. We trust in politics more than you. God, forgive us. Get us back on track. Bring, bind us together in unity and mission. God, help us to become a church that is contagious to the world again. God, help us to be known by nothing more than our love for each other and for the world. God, help us to remember that our 
greatest mission, our most important mission, is to share the good news of the gospel. God, help us not to sacrifice our witness for a temporary, temporary win. God, help build us into the church that you are calling us to be so that we can reach more people for you. God, we can't do this alone, but with you, all things are possible. And so we trust this prayer to your care in the powerful name of Jesus. And let's all say together, amen. So if that group of followers could come together from all different perspectives, if they could overcome the orders and empires of this world, well, why would we ever lose hope? Why would we ever be afraid? Why would we ever lose our passion for mission? Church, no matter who wins in November, remember God is in control. No matter what happens in our government, no matter what happens in this day-to-day structure, remember God is still on his throne. Above all else, remember, never forget, Our hope is in him.